0: Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, we are looking at uh, Luke chapter 14. We'll be in verses 25 through 35 this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you this morning for the gift of your word. God, thank you that your word reveals Jesus Christ to us. God, it reveals our need for Jesus. It reveals, God, the way in which we can come to you and approach you. And Lord, this morning we pray that your word would would be uh, made clear to us. God, we ask that you would give us the gift of illumination, that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding. And God, we pray for the gift of faith, that we would be people who would respond to your word and not only be hearers, God, but that we would be doers of your Word. Lord, I pray that you would help me, God, to think clearly, speak clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we're looking at a section of Luke's Gospel where it talks about discipleship. And for us, it's Jesus is telling us about counting the cost of discipleship. Now, about two weeks ago, I, did, I hadn't counted the cost of something. My wife went to Ikea Furniture, so you guys know where this is going. She went to Ikea, and she's like, honey, I found this amazing dresser. It's everything we want in a dresser, and it's only $250. I'm like, man, that's good news. That's great, hon. And I'm so happy. Why don't you purchase the dresser, and we'll bring it home, and I'll put it together because I do those kinds of things, right? I'm a guy, I know how to put dressers together. So she comes home and the dresser's in a couple of boxes, and there's like a thousand pieces to the dresser, right? And so, no problem, I can do this. I start putting the dresser together, and as I'm doing this, I'm becoming more and more angry. Because there's a thousand pieces, and and you know, they don't really clearly mark the pieces, they're just like, put this piece with this piece. Well, there's four pieces that look the same but they're all a little bit different, and so I'm trying to put this thing together. And as I'm doing this, I get about halfway through, I've spent three hours on this stupid dresser. And after three hours, I get to where I put kind of the top of the dresser onto the the body, the shell. And I go to put it on, and it doesn't fit. It's just a little bit off. And I can look in the holes, and I can see where it should go, and the holes are like drilled just a little bit off. And by this time... I had already cracked one of the, like, the little cross pieces, so I had to glue that together. There was a couple other pieces that, I didn't, that didn't quite fit either, so I had to get my drill out, and I'm drilling pieces, I'm putting my, I'm like, I don't need IKEA's products, I've got my own screws, and, and so I'm doing all this myself. And by the end, after three hours of doing this, I'm about halfway through, I realize this thing's not going to work. This, is, this isn't going to happen. And I am so angry. I am furious. There's few things that make me more, like, I've spent three hours of my life. I've given myself to this thing. It's midnight at this time. For some reason, when I start these projects, I don't, they don't start at, like, noon. They start at 9 o'clock at night. And by the time you get to midnight, I don't care what you're doing, you're probably angry, okay? And so I am angry. And I walk in the bedroom, like, honey, I am so angry angry at ikea i'm angry at the furniture and she's like i heard you cussing at the furniture from the next room <laughs> that's how angry i was so what we didn't what you don't factor when you buy ikea products or the like is you look at the causing oh it's 250 dollars no problem but what you don't factor in is the gas and the tolls to get there and back and then to go back there again, and then to get back again, because you re- have to return it, or the time that it takes to put it together, or the fact that there's missing pieces, what do you do? Not, I mean, this this huge, th- I, I, I've wasted almost a day of my life on this furniture that I'm not getting back. And so I'm like, okay, we're going to take it back. So we go back to Ikea, thankfully they take the furniture back, all of the, the my own screw holes into the thing with my own screws, and the stuff that's cracked, I've had to glue back, which... I'm so sorry, but when they go to disassemble this thing, is there not, it's not coming apart because I glued it. It's wood glue, okay? This stuff is like melded together forever. I, I'm like, look, buddy, I just need to take this back. I, I hate this stuff. I hate Ikea. I hate everyone here. Just please take my stuff. And as I'm in the, you know, the return line, there's also this line of people purchasing stuff, and There's all these happy people and these these happy couples buying furniture, which is going to fill their homes with joy and happiness. And I'm like, I want to say, look, everybody, I know you're happy and you're buying these products, but this may cost you your soul, okay? You may be happy together right now, this beautiful couple buying this furniture. By the end of the night, you'll be cursing at one another. You will not be happy together. This furniture is going to drive a wedge into your marriage, okay? They don't show that in the advertisements. But I'm here to tell you the truth. I want you to know some things. So please purchase, my brothers and sisters, purchase with the knowledge that you will have to come with repentance and confession of sin after you've tried to put this thing together and it doesn't work. Well, here's the thing. I didn't count the cost. I didn't bargain in what, hey, $250 is nothing. But when you factor, I probably paid $600 for this thing when you factor in the time and the tolls and the gas and all that kind of stuff. It was the most expensive thing I've never purchased, okay, because I take it back. I'm like, honey, we're just going to go to some other store, and I don't care what the cost is, we'll buy it. It's, It's assembled, we'll buy it. I don't care what it is. But I didn't count the cost. Now, here in this section of Scripture, Jesus is warning the people who are around him about the cost of discipleship. He doesn't want anyone to come into this thing just kind of, stumbling around, clueless to what it's going to mean for people to follow after him. So he's very explicit about the cost of following after him. Let's look at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. So there were people who were attracted to Jesus. I love this about Jesus' ministries, that all kinds of people were attracted to him. It was, it was rich and poor it was Jew and Gentile. It was man and woman and children and, and, and old people. I mean, everyone in between was attracted to Jesus. There was something about him. The way in which he would, would, would talk to people. The way in which he would, he would heal people. The way in which he would love people. The way in which he would confront people. There was something so winsome, so beautiful, so attractive about Jesus Christ. Though no matter where he went, there were people just trying to get around him, to, to hear him and to watch him and to be with him. So here it is, Jesus is here, and great crowds are accompanying him. What does Jesus say to the great crowds? Verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What an interesting way to start a sermon. I want you to hate the people who are around you, right? It'd be like us, to, hey, you know what, guys, we're going we're gonna to take a little five-minute break here. Why don't you um, take your kids and children's ministry, then come back up, and we want you to hate the people around you, okay? Give dirty looks, you know, don't speak to anyone. Please go back to your seat immediately and scorn at those around you. But he's not talking about that. What is he talking about? He's talking about you need to hate your, husband, your, your, your spouse or your family. He's not saying something different than what's said elsewhere in Scripture. Because in Exodus 20, we, we have the fifth commandment, right? Honor father and mother. In Luke 6, we've already read that Jesus commands us to love our enemies. In Matthew 22, Jesus says for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. In John 13, Jesus says, Love others the way in which I have loved you. And that's pretty intense. That's a real kind of love. So what what is Jesus saying here then? What is Jesus talking about when he says to hate those in your family? Well, he's using a Hebrew idiom or a figure of speech. It's like us saying something like, it's raining cats and dogs outside. And if you didn't know what that meant, if you waited 2,000 years and turned back time and said, okay, you know, on this date, John was preaching a sermon and he said it was raining cats and dogs outside. Let's analyze what that means. Let's try to figure out, we need to go back and see what that meant in that time. So it's like us saying, hey, the guy isn't playing with a full deck, or he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, things like that, okay? He's, t- he's using figures of speech. He fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down, all right? It's just a figure of speech. And what Jesus is saying here is that we need to love him. We need to love him with a love that is far superior and more intense and more committed than anything else in this world. That compared to our, our spouses, our children, our family, that this love for Jesus takes first place. That this love for Jesus isn't just on par with everything else. There's, we just have a bunch of stuff in our lives. We've got our family over here. We've got our, our relationships with other people outside, our family. And Jesus is kind of tacked on the side of that. He's saying, no, no, no. This love, this love that you have for me that I'm calling you to, is greatly superior, is far more intense than anything else in this world. That compared to this love, everything else looks like hate. That this is the kind of love I am calling you to. This kind of intense love. There is no, it is not second place to anything. Everything else in the world takes a second place to this love for Jesus Christ. That he is our preference He is our passion. He is our purpose. We're here to serve Him and honor Him with our lives and that we let go of everything else. Now he continues on in verse 27 and says this, after he tells everyone to hate their family, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So he continues on. He doesn't let up at all. You can see what the disciples are like. Whoa, Jesus, like easy, man. We're trying to like, are you trying to scare people away here? This isn't good PR for our our ministry. I mean, this is like, he doesn't hold back at all. He's calling people to journey with him. Where is Jesus headed on this journey? What do we read in chapter 9? Where is Jesus going? He's headed to Jerusalem. He's not going to Jerusalem for a class reunion or to meet up with some friends. He has got a purpose in every step that he takes. He is on the road to Jerusalem, and he is heading straight for an encounter with religious leaders who are going to persecute him and are going to crucify him on the cross. He is on his way to his death, and he knows that. Every step he takes is filled with purpose. He says, I want you to come follow after me where I am going, and I am going to my death. I'm going to be crucified, and I know this. It doesn't come as a surprise to Jesus. It wasn't something that he kind of just was hoping it didn't happen. This was going to happen, and he knew this. And he says, I want you to come after me. and Follow after me. And take up your cross. Like the one I am taking up. On my way to Jerusalem and to my death. This is a life. This is a life of rejection. This is a life where Jesus says, look, following after me is going to be the most difficult thing you've ever done. It is filled with rejection. The people around you are not going to understand what is going on in your life. And if you showed up at work and you begin to tell people about Jesus Christ and the glories of His name and who He is, people are going to look at you funny. Your family may look at you funny. But this is what Jesus Christ is calling us to. He's saying, look, this is not going to win you any popularity with anybody. As you begin to live your life for Him and with Him, it's going to look different from everybody else. It's going to be a shock to people. You tell people the truth about what you believe, about Jesus Christ, about the Scriptures, about purity, about abortion, about gay marriage. Whatever those things may be, People are going to look at you funny. They think you're old-fashioned. Don't know what you're talking about. You're a fool. If people have rejected Jesus, how much more so will they reject those who follow after him? He's saying, look, I want you to be ready for this. I want you to expect this. Don't let this come as a surprise to you. Following me will mean... Rejection, and it will mean the, the cost of your life. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. all that he has cannot be my disciple. When I traveled to the Dominican Republic on a couple of missions trips, we'd go there and we'd see all these half built homes and it was just I was like, why is there so many homes that are you know partially built or just kind of the foundations there and And someone explained to me like, well, actually, what happens is people don't really use banks because people are so poor that they just their savings account really is this home that they kind of every little bit they get they put into it and just continue to build so it may take 10 years to build your home but eventually you have your home built he's not talking about that here he's talking about someone who sits down and considers the cost of what it's going to take to build so if if we if we as a church leadership came and said hey look mercy hill We're going to have a a capital campaign. We're going to build a new building. We've bought some property. Here's what we think it's going to cost. Can we please all pitch in? We all do that. Great. We're going to go forward. And we pour the foundation, and everyone's excited. And then we come to the church and say, you know what? We didn't consider the cost of the building. It was just a foundation that we had figured on, and so therefore we don't have enough to complete it. People would think, what are you talking about? You know, this guy's one brick short of a load. I mean, you guys should have considered these things. Jesus is saying here, look, I want you to consider what's going on. Don't begin the process and then realize what it's going to cost. I want you to know the cost right now, up front. Up front, I want you to understand what it's going to cost to follow after me. Sit down, deliberate. Be proactive in your consideration of what he's asking but the second example is one of war. And this one's a little different because with building a, building a tower and not finishing, well, you can just kind of walk away and there's a, kind of a lasting monument to maybe your foolishness or your inability to carry through. But in a war, you can't walk away from the fight. It's coming to you whether you like it or not. You can't just decide, well, it's, I don't, it doesn't bother me. I'm just going to walk away from this one and remain neutral. The fight is coming to you, and you have to either fight or surrender. There's no neutral ground. And here it is, there's someone coming up against a king who's far superior and stronger than you. And this king has got more power and more ability and more strength and more knowledge. He says, would you resist him or fight against him? He says, look, you need to make peace as soon as possible. I think that way sometimes when we think about our relationship with Almighty God, we either make a decision to follow after Christ or we reject it. There's no neutral ground with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes and put a, puts a fork in everyone's road and says, look, you either follow after me or you reject me and go your own way. There's no, neutral, there's no third option. There's no neutral ground. There's no Switzerland in this, in this agreement here. You either follow after me or you reject me. In the same way in this one, you either fight or you give up. Because this king is far superior to you. He's got more power than you do. What will you do? Will you make peace as soon as possible? Think about what kind of power does God have? What kind of knowledge does God have? What is his ability like? We need to make peace with him as soon as possible. This isn't something we can put off till later. Why resist him and fight against him? And so he sums all these things up in verse 33. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It sums it all up in this thing. It says, Those who do not renounce all that they have are not really my disciples at all. And I'd like to I would like to read this and think, well, maybe I'll give a little bit. Maybe I'll just kind of surrender some of my life to Jesus, and I'll kind of keep the other part for myself. There's certain areas of my life that I really like, or really enjoy, or that I do not want to surrender to God. And the stark, the stark wording that Jesus uses doesn't allow us to do that. He says it requires everything. That there's nothing in our life we don't come to Jesus and say, God. I'll come to you on my terms. Here's how it's going to look. I'll be your disciple, but I'm going to call the shots what that's going to look like and how it's going to play out. He says, no, no, I call the shots. This is what true discipleship looks like. And I want us to take our attention to three things from this passage. Number one, there is absolute demands of our discipleship. There is absolute demands of discipleship. R.J. Karras writes this, Discipleship is not periodic volunteer work on one's own terms and at one's own convenience. That's not discipleship. Jesus in this passage is using all or nothing terms. It's either everything or nothing. It is all of life's statements. There's no parts of our life that we surrender. and Well, there's other parts that we hold back. He says, this call to follow after me is going to cost you everything, all of your life, every area of your life. This is going to cost you every little bit of your life. There is a single-minded devotion to our king that he is calling us to, and nothing less. He also uses either or language. Well, you can kind of do this, or, you know, if you don't, that's okay, you can do something else. Either we surrender all to Jesus Christ or we're not his disciple at all. There isn't a little bit here, a little bit there. It's either everything or it's nothing. He uses that metaphor of going to battle. He says, assess the situation. Take stock of what's going on around you. Understand your own life. What is happening? This battle is coming to you understand what the cost is going to be it's about coming to him in full surrender and for me this battle of discipleship isn't usually about the things of God or the things of the enemy or the things of the devil it's not like well I'm either going to follow after Jesus or I'm going to follow after Satan it's usually the things that battle for my heart and my attention and my affections and my devotion to Jesus are usually good things like family like personal time just some downtime or it's just hey I, I want to do some things I want to have family time I want to have my own free time these things battle against my soul for a complete devotion to God and it's not that these things are bad it's not that it's bad to have family time it's not that it's bad to have free time it's not that it's bad to go to work and work hard those things aren't bad or sinful in in and of themselves but what happens is, is, so often for me, I can turn inward. Well, it's family time, so I need to make sure I'm getting my family time. And there may be other things going around with, with an opportunities to serve people or reach out to people or bless people. But it's family time, so we need to, to kind of, you know, get the wagons, circle the wagons around. and We need to make sure we get our family time. And, and then we begin to turn inward instead of turning outward. We begin to think only about ourselves instead of what other people are doing around us. And this battle is beginning to take place. And so there's a reprioritization. Usually it's, it's not just that those things are bad and we shouldn't have family time. I'm not saying that. It's that usually for me, it's, I need to reprioritize my week. I need to lay down a few things to say, you know what, this is what is most important what is most important is for me to surrender my life to Jesus. And if there are are people that God has put in my life around me or opportunities to serve or bless or turn outward, I need to be at a place where I can say, yes, Lord, absolutely. Whatever you're calling me to, I am there. It also may mean at work. Man, at work, people gossip, right? I mean, there's gossip going on at work. People, you work somewhere long enough you're going to find out that most people don't like the boss. It could be the nicest guy in the world. People do not like your boss, right? People talk about the boss and slander the, the person who you're working for. For you to surrender to God, I mean, just simply at the workplace, not joining in on the gossip, not joining in on the slander, being one who actually sticks up for people when they're not there. Because you know as soon as, if they're all talking about your boss or another coworker, when you're present and that person isn't there, As soon as you're gone, who do you think they're talking about? Right? It's that way. And so for us, it may mean like, look, people are going to talk bad about me. People are going to look down upon me. But I'm not going to be the one who's going to join in and participate with all those other things. Number two, discipleship also means the giving up or surrendering all things to Christ. When we come to Jesus Christ, we come with open hands. When we come to Jesus Christ, we don't come with closed fists saying, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit, or maybe I'll I'll kind of slowly come your way. He says, no, you need to come to me with open hands. Say, everything belongs to you. This is all for you. And that at any moment, he has the right to claim our car, our home, our free time, our energy, our strength, our money, whatever that may be, he has a right to that that nothing that I have or nothing that I am says, no, this is mine and not yours, that we would be able to say to Christ with open hands, whatever you call me to, whatever you're calling me to do, to give, to go, I'll say, yes, Lord, it all belongs to you. There's nothing that I have that ultimately did not come from you, and it ultimately belongs to you. And I deceive myself when I think it's it's mine, that this belongs to me, That my health, my strength, my time, somehow I deserve it or it belongs to me. It doesn't. The parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, this guy built the barns and he had a a surplus of crops. And he said, look, I'm going to build this off for myself. I'm going to store up grain for myself. I've got some good years ahead of me. I can take it easy. It's all for me. And what did God say to him? God said, Fool. It doesn't belong to you. It's not all about you. And in the end, he loses it all. And in the end, the rich fool loses all of it. So the real, the real challenge for us is that in the end, we lose it all anyways. Right? I mean, if you think about it, whether we try to hold on to our life and our possessions for ourselves, we're going to end up losing those things anyways. Or if we go to Christ, He may demand all of it anyways as well. But what would we rather have? Tr- the option of treasure in heaven and surrender to God or just losing it all? Discipleship is, a tra- is, is traveling a rough and often untraveled road to places we may not want to go and where the end, across, awaits us. He finishes this section, verses 34 and 35, by saying this, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, Let him hear. It's a call for us to pay attention. And after reading this, I think, why would anyone want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? Why would anyone want to follow after Jesus? After hearing what he said, was there anybody who said, yeah, sign me up, that sounds great. I'd love to do that. I'm really in for just the loss of everything. I, I hate my life anyway, so what does it matter? I mean, who's signing up for these things? He's saying it's going to be hard, it's going to cost you everything, it's risky. It's going to cost you your time and energy and money and possessions and relationships. He says none of those things are going to be your own. I may demand all of it at any given time. And you need to be ready to say yes, Lord, with open hands. As I was just preparing this, I just felt in my heart There's various areas of each one of our lives where God is calling you to obedience and discipleship. That may mean sharing your faith at work. It may mean inviting a neighbor over for us. I feel like I've had in my heart to invite the lady who lives across the street from us for like a month, and I've told Michelle, hey honey, I want to invite the lady over. I want and I just haven't done it. I've put it off, I've put it off, I've got I've been too busy. I feel like this is a a reminder for me that God is calling us, calling me to reach those around me. And I I can't continue to put it off. It is disobedience to God. I want to encourage you. What is God calling you to? Is he calling you to invite the neighbor over? Is he calling you to share your faith with somebody? Is he calling you to give something? Is he calling you to... Lay down your free time for the sake of serving somebody else. And I think even as I'm saying this, different light bulbs are going off in people's heads saying, yep, that's what he's calling me to do. I've known that for a long time, but I've continued to put it off. I want to encourage you. God is reminding you of what he's calling you to do. And it's different for everybody. Not everyone's called right now to invite their neighbor across the street over to their home. Now, he may do that with you, and that may be a time for that. It's probably sooner than you think, but he may be calling you to share your faith at work or reach someone whose no one has reached. So why do it? Why is God asking us to surrender all of our lives, and why would, why would we want to do this? And I think for us to understand that we need to understand God's heart of love towards his people. God's passionate pursuing love of his people and it's for our best, forsaking everything else that we, we, that we may know Christ. And as I read this, I think, I can't do this. I'm lazy, I'm apathetic, I love myself too much. This is where the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in. This is where the gospel takes root in our hearts. Because Christ Jesus, knowing that we loved ourselves, that we love our time, that we love our possessions, knowing that we were unable to do any of these things, really respond without him, he went to the cross and died for our sins. He went and died for a people, knowing that they were lazy and that they've loved their own things too much. He went and died for people who would would hear what he said and said, there's no way I can do that. And he says, I know. That's why I'm going to die on the cross for you and live the perfect life in your place because you can't do this. And when you fail, you can come back to me and I'm going to forgive you and cleanse you and give you the strength to walk in obedience. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. He is calling us to do something that we cannot possibly do in our own strength. I reason and think, there's no way anyone can... I can't do this. No one can do this. He said, I know. I did. Jesus Christ did. He lived this for us. That when we fail time and time again, we can go back and receive the forgiveness and grace to be cleansed of our disobedience and the grace to walk in obedience to Him. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. That as He calls us to discipleship and follow after Him... He knows he's calling imperfect people who are full of loves of many other things where we do not put him first and foremost in our lives. He says, come to me and I will cleanse you and I will give you the grace to walk in obedience to me. I think what a beautiful picture for us of what it means to follow after Jesus Christ. I want to just read in closing Philippians 3 and i th- i feel like for us Philippians 3 verse 8 this is what this is our desire this is the point of all of it Philippians 3 verse 8 the apostle paul writes this indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." That we may know Christ. That we would walk in following after Jesus Christ. That he would be our prize. He would be our reward. That whatever would hold us back from following after Jesus Christ, from, from knowing Jesus, whatever it is in our lives, whether it's our possessions or relationships or commitments, that all these things would fall to the wayside, that we would know Christ. That we would have Jesus. We would know him and he would become our great treasure. That is our hope. And apart from him, this is impossible. We need Jesus. I want to close this morning. Brian's going to lead us in communion. But I want to close this morning with just us humbly coming before the Lord and asking him to give us this kind of devotion and passion. And that we would be the people who would see Jesus as our great reward. That he would be the one who would be our first love. That everything else would take a a distant second place to him in his glory. So Lord Jesus, we pray this morning, God, that you would give us a single-minded devotion in obedience and surrender to you. God, we understand that apart from you, we cannot do this. And so God, we ask for your grace and your strength this morning. God, you call us to do something that we cannot do in and of ourselves. So God, we throw ourselves at your feet. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit to empower us and strengthen us and direct us and equip us And meet us right where we are at. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you came and took our place. That you live this out perfectly. So that when we fail, we can run to you. Receive your forgiveness, your mercy, and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.